Let's pray together. Father, who is a God like you who not only sends your son to redeem rebels, but gives your revealed word that we might know you. You are not just a distant God who demands perfection. You send the means by which we might live perfectly, namely living in your son and live in the life that is provided from him where you are not just our God and Lord, but our father. We are adopted children of you. And so I pray that as we look at these four verses in Matthew, we would soak up every bit. We would see your son more clearly. Our hearts might be transformed all the more and conformed all the more into his image that your spirit would be active among us, that every sin that is clinging so closely might be laid aside. Every idol, perhaps that we're not even aware of, might be exposed and removed and anything that would rob us of the joy of knowing you and seeing your son would be banished from our lives. We pray that you would do that through your word as you have for 2,000 years throughout the history of your your church. Send your spirit to transform our hearts. We love you and pray in your son's holy name. Amen. So it is the week after Easter, which means we'll be returning to Matthew as Bryce just read. We've been walking through Matthew this series in chapter one. We saw everybody's favorite passage to read the genealogies, a fun list of names. You know, a lot of you at the beginning of the year, it's January Bible reading, and you're like, I don't want to go through the whole Leviticus numbers thing. I'll start in the New Testament, and then you open the Bible, and it's like, boom, I got you. Here's a list of them, and you're like, oh man, okay. So we started with that. We saw the genealogies. We talked about that was kind of Matthew putting Jesus' resume right before the narrative of his life. We saw Joseph hearing that Mary was pregnant, an angel appearing to him, telling him of the miraculous birth of his son. And then in chapter two, we have been walking through what's often called the infancy narrative. We've seen the wise men come and worship Jesus as Herod. Those who should be accepting him are actually seeking to kill him, rejecting him. We see, saw a couple weeks ago, Joseph taking Mary and Jesus and fleeing to Egypt, lest Jesus be killed by that wicked king. And today we're going to see the return from Egypt back to Israel. Matthew in all of these is not just giving us history, just blanket history. Here's some facts about this guy that we worship named Jesus. He's showing us something about who Jesus is in every single piece. So in these Short four uh, verses today, we're going to see a couple things. One, we're going to see a sovereign God, a sovereign guiding God, Joseph following his sovereign guidance. We're going to see a new deliverer that is arising, a new deliverer, and thirdly, a despised deliverer. So a sovereign God, a sovereign guiding God. Number two, a new deliverer, a new and better deliverer. And then number three, a despised deliverer. Deliver. So look down at your Bibles, look at verse 19, we'll jump right in. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod. 
He was, after, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went to live in a city called Nazareth. So the first thing we see as we've been following this narrative, again, we, we've broken this up, but you're meant to read you know, this whole book, right? We have the whole chapter two uh, as a whole. They fled, and the first thing we see in this passage is the one they're fleeing from has died. Ding dong, the witch is dead, okay? Herod's dead, and so now an angel is showing up in verse 19, telling Joseph, rise, go back, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. The one who was seeking the child's life, he's dead. The one who sought the child's life is dead. So in verse 13, if you remember, a couple weeks ago, the angel told uh, Joseph almost the exact same thing. When he told him to get up and flee, he said, Goes up, get up, flee, and wait until I tell you. Okay, Joseph told, just go to Egypt and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring word to you. And so here is the telling. Here is the angel coming back. And we see almost the exact same wording in verse 13. So if you look at verse 13 in your Bibles, the angel says, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. And here in verse 20, almost the exact same, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. So identical commands. And then we see almost the same wording again in Joseph's obedience. So look down at verse 14 in your Bibles. He rose, Joseph rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And then here in verse 21, he rose, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So you see identical commands and then identical obedience. He returns in kind of the same way that he flees from divine direction. God sending an angel to guide him. But then we have this twist in the story in verse 22. But when Herod heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So here's the twist. Joseph's been perfectly obeying. And then now we see Joseph hears of this new ruler, Herod's son. Herod, the one who was seeking Jesus to kill him, has, is, is dead. But now his son is reigning in his place and Herod fears and actually goes, instead of Judea, Bethlehem goes to the district of Galilee. So who is this, who's this new ruler, Archelaus or Archelaus? He's the son of Herod the Great. So the one who we talked about a few weeks ago was crazy, tyrant, uh, killed his wife and a few sons. Anyone who threatened his rule politically, he was bad news. He's gone and now his son is reigning in his place who was known as just as much of a tyrant as his father except he was known as he's more incompetent, which is always a good thing, right? That's always one, what you want in your ruler. So not only is he a tyrant, he's an incompetent tyrant. Even Herod the Great was this great builder and did all these great things for Rome and for, uh, Rome and for Israel, but his son is incompetent. He's actually banished a few years later to Gaul by, by Rome for being such a bad leader. Uh, one commentator that I read says this, uh, he was noted for his cruelty in an age where cruelty was not hard to find. Okay, so he must have been really, really bad if it's, he's known for his cruelty. So it's not surprising that Joseph, Joseph fears to settle in his region and goes to another place, okay? So Hitler's dead, so, and Stalin is reigning in his place, okay? So not much of an improvement. Joseph decides to not go to Bethlehem, but rather to Galilee and, and settle in the town of Nazareth. Now, notice something. Joseph, in this act, is not sinning. It almost looks like, okay, he was obeying, but then he got scared, and he went somewhere else. But notice what the angel had said. The angel said, go to Israel, the whole country, 
That was the command. And Galilee, where he goes, is within Israel. And then we also see it was his fearful decision was confirmed in a dream. So he's not really sinning. He's still obeying, just shrewdly obeying, wisely navigating to where he's not putting his family in harm's way again. So in these first four verses, we see almost there's two angles by which you could look at this story. The first is the one that we naturally look at it through, which is Joseph's perspective, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus' angle. So again, think about the story of this chapter. Joseph is told, run. The king, where you are, remember they're six miles away from Herod's palace. He's coming, not just generally for, you know, people that look like you. He's coming for your son. He wants to kill your son, the one in your arms. Flee because he's coming after him. So he runs to another country, actually runs to Egypt, right? Not a quick journey. And now he's told, return. Okay, good. There's relief. And now he hears, wait a minute, there's an even worse tyrant reigning. So you see from Joseph's story, we're not told. The text doesn't tell us about his emotional state. We don't get a whole lot of, you know, insight into that, but I think all of us could imagine the weight of Joseph here. Rise, take your family, run. Rise, come back. And then wait a minute, there's somebody else that's horrible that's reigning over there. And again, they're not just fleeing general persecution, okay? This isn't Canada fleeing to America, okay? This is your son. The most powerful man in the nation is coming after your son. And so we see he, he's, he's, he's obeying, but you can imagine the, the weight of the stress here. That's one angle we can look at the story from. There's actually another angle that you can look at the story from, and it's from the angle of heaven, from the perspective of God. So we see on the ground, Joseph is running. He's narrowly avoiding death. You can imagine that would be somewhat stressful. And then from God's angle, from God's perspective, you see guidance, you see sovereign control over everything. You know the character in this story who's not stressed? God. The one who's holding the universe together. The one who's giving Herod his next breath and his last breath. And so there's something here, that, a picture kind of being painted here that is a foundational truth for you and I living in a time filled with anxiety. In a time where stress is kind of the norm in a time where anxiety seems to be our biggest or at least most common problem. And that foundational truth is, no matter the circumstances of your life, you can rest in the reality that your God is sovereignly in control of your days. At no point do your days leave his sovereign hand. Notice something, notice the angel, God's messenger, doesn't give Joseph the whole picture. He doesn't say, hey, go to Israel, but really go to Nazareth because there's this bad ruler in charge. He gives him, just go to Israel. And then another dream we're assuming is from uh, a divinely given. He gives him step by step by step. Again, imagine Joseph, just tell me what to do instead of I just have to, this next step. Okay, that's kind of scary. This next step, right? That's what we want. Just give me the whole picture. Just lay it all out before me so I don't have to rest. And re the reality is your God and my God has woven into creation our need to depend on him. Our need, our necessity to trust him. God doesn't want to just give you your whole life so you can say, thanks, see you at the end of my life. I'm good with this now. Your God, think about it, wants you 
in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death to say what? I will fear no evil for you are with me. As Joseph is fleeing people coming after his life, coming after his son's life, God doesn't want to just say, let me remove your stress and just give you the picture. You're going to be fine. He's going to die. His son's not going to touch you. Jesus is going to grow up and be totally fine. God wants dependence. He wants trust. He wants your greatest comfort not to be knowing what's going to happen, but he wants your greatest comfort to be that you are overseen by a good shepherd who is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. So flipping this, seeing from God's perspective, we see your life is in his loving hand. He has known you, think about this, he has known you and predestined you before he said, let there be light. Your days are numbered, he knows them. No one dies early, there's no such thing as dying early, as a life being robbed when there was so much yet to live. Every day is numbered by the God who knows you, loves you. His life is planned out. And even if you don't see it, you can trust him. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, uh, one of the later books is called The Horse and His Boy, uh, where Shasta, who's the, the, the boy and his horse are, are going on this journey and they're, they're Goal, the goal of the book is they hear this coming invasion of Narnia and they're going to warn Narnia, this coming invasion that's secret that they don't know about. And all throughout the story, Shasta doesn't really know what's going on, but there's all these events where this lion is spurring them on. There's one point where they're going too slow and the lion actually chases them. So they're running from the lion. And there's one point where he's walking along a cliff and he doesn't know it, it's dark, and he just feels this strange presence keeping him just close enough away from the cliff. There's one point in the journey where he's sleeping, and he hears all these terrifying things around him, but somehow they're being fought off. And at the end of the book, Shasta actually meets this lion and figures out his name is Aslan, and it's Lewis's character for Jesus, and how the whole journey Jesus was there protecting him, guiding him, watching every step, keeping evil away from him. Shasta doesn't know it until the end. In a lot of ways, that is exactly how our life goes. We may never see in this life God's perfect plan. Do you ever think about how many wrecks have been avoided unbeknownst to you? How many things that happen throughout your day that are divinely orchestrated that save your life? And you'll never know it until the end of your life and you'll see. Here, Joseph on the ground, he doesn't see, okay, God's perfectly, you know, guiding my path. He's just obeying. He's just trusting the Lord. He even gets angels and dreams. You're not going to get that. At least I don't think so. Uh, right? He even gets probably more than you'll ever get. And yet he is obeying and trusting the Lord. That is the foundation that we stand on in the midst of an incredibly anxious world. Your God is not anxious. Your God is absolutely in control of everything. And even when you don't see it, you can trust him. It's why you need to know and trust his character, by the way. Charles Spurgeon, I've said this quote before. Charles Spurgeon has this quote where he says, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we don't know what his plans are. We're in that moment. We're like, how could you be in the midst of this? We must trust his heart. So all I want us to see in this first part, not all I want us to see, but the main thing I want you to see in Joseph's stressful travels as he's narrowly avoiding the death of his son, people coming after his son, is as the anxieties of the world grow, 
as things get worse around you. Don't get more anxious. Don't mirror those who have no hope and have no peace. Rather, stand on the firm foundation that your God is in control of all of it and actually rest, actually breathe. As I heard Mark Dever say a few months ago, the weight of the world is on God's shoulders. Let that be something that allows you to rest. Develop the discipline when you're in the midst of all of this turmoil to zoom out from this God angle, God perspective, he is not overwhelmed. He is well aware of every piece of persecution, every bit of anxiety, every bit of stress, and he wants you to be able to say in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, you're with me. To have a peace that surpasses all understanding, not just in good times, but in the worst of times. Your God is in control. Let that be the foundation you stand on to fight off every bit of anxiety this world could ever throw at you. So that's the first thing we see in this from Matthew. God is absolutely sovereign as Joseph is obeying this next step that he has been given. The next thing we see is this image of a new and better deliverer. So look back at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, one of the tools that we've been, one of the tools for interpreting the scriptures we've constantly been talking about, Jeff spent a lot of time a few weeks ago talking about it, is typology. We talked about how one of Matthew, the author of this, this gospel, one of his goals is to show Jesus as the true and better fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. The Old Testament are a giant arrow pointing to Jesus. B.B. Uh, Warfield, I talked about this, I think, in our first, uh, first sermon on Matthew. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton professor, says, the old, he gave this picture. The Old Testament is like a room with all these treasures in it all this beautiful furniture, but it's a very dimly lit room. So as you see throughout the Old Testament, you see these promises, you see all these great hopes, but it's dimly lit, it's confusing. We don't exactly know how it's gonna come about. And the New Testament, specifically Matthew, is turning on the lights and saying, Jesus, 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 it's all Jesus, right? We'll even see Jesus in, in uh, stories in the Gospel of Luke say, you know, these little summary statements where Jesus, starting with Moses throughout the prophets, explained how all the scriptures pointed to him right? Jesus is the treasure of the Old Testament. Matthew's turning on the lights of the dimly lit room and pointing to Jesus. So we've seen scriptures where, uh, Matthew already, where he specifically points to prophecies and says, this is about Jesus. So we saw in Matthew 1, 22 through 23, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall receive or conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew's saying in chapter one, Isaiah said this in the dimly lit room. We didn't know really what that was talking about. Lights on Jesus. Okay, you see that? So there's specific prophecies, but the main way Matthew is going to be turning on the lights is through what's called typology. Again, Jeff talked about this a few weeks ago. Typology is where someone or something or some event or some pattern in the Old Testament anticipates or kind of prefigures a greater fulfillment in Jesus. And this is intentional. This is intentionally done by the Spirit uh, inspiring the authors and the authors being aware of it as well. So typology, different than allegory. Allegory is, is where 
you know, it's not that it's unbiblical, but it's, it's, sometimes we get ourselves into trouble. It's where you kind of find Jesus under every rock. So you have the story of Elijah or Elisha when people are making fun of him because he's bald or these kids are, and he like summons these two bears that come and kill the kids. And then the story moves on. You're like, this would be, you know, prime Sunday school lesson, right? Don't make fun of bald people. People would look at that story and say, you know, the two bears is Jesus in the spirit and the kids are sin and they're coming, you know, you're just trying to find Jesus under every rock. That's not typology. Typology is looking at patterns, people, and events specifically inspired by the spirit in the authors of the scripture that ultimately point to Jesus. To summarize the great doctor theologian who is among us every week, Jeffrey Ashley, he said this a couple weeks ago, typology is when you see a relationship between the Old Testament and Jesus that is not a coincidence, but rather providential. Okay, Robert Jeffrey Ashley III Esquire said that a few weeks ago. <laughs> so all that to say, Matthew is doing that and he's doing it on purpose. He knows what he's doing. So we saw already, we've seen this picture. Jesus is the greater Israel. We saw a few weeks ago, out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew highlights, they flee to Egypt to show Jesus coming out of Egypt. Who else comes out of Egypt? But Israel, and he's going to be the greater Israel who doesn't worship the golden calf at the bottom of the mountain, but rather perfectly follows the law, right? Jesus is going to, fa or going to succeed where Israel failed. And so here in verse 19, he's doing this as well. So look one more time, verse 19. When Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Here it is. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And you're like, okay, I don't get it. Isn't he just recording facts? Well, Matthew, again, is expecting his audience to know the Old Testament. And this wording here, as we'll see in just a second, is meant to make your antenna fly up. Wait a minute. I've heard that before. Where have I heard that before? Exodus 4, 19, right after the burning bush where Moses goes and God says, go to, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt, go tell Pharaoh, let them go, let them worship me in the wilderness. And then he says this, notice the wording here. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. You see the parallel there. Those seeking the child's life are dead. Same to Moses. All those seeking your life are dead. Again, now, remember, all of chapter two, what have we seen so far? Jesus shows up in the story, and that makes a king very nervous. And the king, as a result, kills all the firstborn boys, two and under, to try and eliminate Jesus, and Jesus miraculously escapes. Does that sound familiar? Israel's presence makes a king very nervous. And so the king, to stomp out any threat, kills every boy two years and under, and there's one boy who miraculously escapes. And here we see, again, that same wording in, in Exodus 4, Matthew saying, showing this parallel, those who seek the child's life are dead. What's Matthew getting at here? Jesus is not just the new and better Israel, as we saw earlier and we'll continue to see, Math, or Jesus is the new and better Moses. Jesus is the new and better Moses. Moses is the figure of the Old Testament. The main figure of the Old Testament, every Jew's hero in Jesus' day would have been Moses. Second place is not close. 
He's the deliverer. He's the one who brought them out of slavery in the Exodus, the one who leads them, right? Obviously, it's God leading them, but Moses is the leader who goes up on the mountain and hears the law of the Lord. There is no greater figure throughout Israel's history than Moses. And here, Matthew is showing Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's this new deliverer. But that's not all that Matthew wants you to see. When is Moses told this same thing? The men who sought your life are dead. It is right before the greatest moment of deliverance of Israel's history. Again, if you would have asked Jews in Jesus' day, who's your hero? Moses. Second place isn't close. If you would have asked Jews in Jesus' day, what is the greatest event of your history? They would say the Exodus. And second place is not close. They're not talking about David and Goliath. They're not talking about Elisha and the she-bears. Exodus. We were slaves, powerless, and our God showed up and not only delivered us, but conquered the strongest nation in the world. And Matthew here is not just saying Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's pointing to what does Moses lead the people? He's the new and better deliverer. A second Exodus is coming. In fact, Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. And if you know your New Testament, Hebrews is gonna spend a lot of time showing how Jesus is the new and better Moses. A greater deliverer is coming in Jesus and a greater deliverance will come through Jesus. That's what Matthew is drawing on here. Now, here's the question. As we keep reading Matthew, that's gonna be in everybody's mind that Jesus encounters as they begin to think this guy might be the Messiah. This guy might be the deliverer that we've been waiting for, the new and greater Moses, the prophet that Moses promised would show up like me that we should listen to. Here's the key question. What or who is he going to deliver us from? Who is this deliverer going to deliver us from? And let me go ahead and just tell you what's in everybody's mind. Rome. Our outside, external oppressors. That is what's in everybody's mind. So keep that question in your mind. Who is he going to deliver us from? And as we look to this final section, he's not just the new deliverer, he is a despised deliverer. A despised deliverer. Look at verse 23. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So there's the end of the journey. Verse, or all of chapter two has been this long journey. It ends not in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, but in Nazareth. Nazareth in Jesus' day, first of all, it's it's almost certainly Mary and Joseph's home where they live before they go to Bethlehem. You see in Luke one and two, when the angel appears to Mary, it's in Nazareth. Uh, Claudia and I actually, (laughs) when we were in Israel a few years ago, we were in the church. There's a church built on every site. Uh, And so we were in the church that's supposedly built on the site where the angel appeared to Mary, so in Nazareth. And I kissed her in a holy place, and we were severely chastised by the people running the church because God, if we know anything about God, it's that he does not like marital intimacy. So... (laughs) especially in his presence. And so, yeah, we, uh, we got, got in trouble. Uh, so it's, it's almost certainly where they're from. It's where they settle here at the end of this story of, this, of them running around. But here is the big question of really this whole passage, this prophecy here at the end that Matthew is 
talking about. So that, or they settled in Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, here's where some of the problems start to show up and where some of the atheists start to fist pump. They start to say, er error in the Bible, error in the Bible. So first of all, if you know the story of Samson, the Nazarite vow, all that stuff, that is not this. Okay, Nazarite vow and Nazareth have nothing to do with each other. They're spelled differently. They're different words. Uh, so take that out of your mind. But if you know your Old Testament, you will know that no prophecy about the Messiah being called the Nazarene exists. At no point does any prophet say, and he shall be called the Nazarene. In fact, the town of Nazareth is mentioned zero places in the Old Testament. So our faith is futile. Let's close in prayer uh, and we will. What's Matthew doing? There is no prophecy. So this isn't like a virgin will conceive and bear a son. There's no prophecy like that. And there's no mention even of Nazareth in the Old Testament. So what is Matthew getting at? What's happening here? So notice, notice a few things. First of all, uh, this prophecy, whatever Matthew's talking about here, is different than what he's said before. Again, in, in, in Matthew 1, 22, all this took place to, be, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. So that is a specific quote. Matthew, or, uh, uh, Isaiah 7, 14, Matthew is quoting and saying, prophecy, Jesus. Okay, so that's not this. We don't have a specific quote or something like that. And he says prophets, plural. What's happening here? So it's different than what's happened before. So think for a second, what do we see with Old Testament prophecy pointing towards the Messiah? What are the different types of things we see? What are the categories? We see, first of all, specific details prophesied about him, like the virgin birth, like he will be born in Bethlehem. We saw that in Micah, like he will be from David's descendants. David would have a son that would reign forever. He would be the Messiah King who would reign forever. So we see specific details. Secondly, we see these kind of future hopes that will happen through the Messiah. So we see that when this Messiah comes, he will bring in the perfect eternal kingdom, this kingdom of justice and peace and babies will play with snakes because there's no more hostility and all these future things that we're like, okay, it makes me a little uneasy, but I'll trust God, right? The wolf will lie down with the lamb hugging right, and all the beautiful paintings we see in Mardell, right? We see these, these future hopes that will come through the Messiah. Now, in prophecies about the Messiah, what do the prophecies say about who the Messiah will be? What prophecies do we get about who the Messiah will be? We get many. Here's three of them that all follow the same theme. I'll just read these. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. They say that sarcastically. Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you, this one who is despised, deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. And then one we know the best, 
Isaiah 53. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What Matthew is getting at here, as he alludes to the prophecy of the prophets, plural, that he would be a Nazarene, is that he would be scorned, despised, mocked, abhorred, cut off, no majesty that we would stand in awe of him, and he would be rejected. Now, what does it have to do with Nazareth? What does that have to do with Nazareth? You have to understand the town of Nazareth was extremely unimportant. It probably had a population of around 200-ish. Again, there's no mention of it in the Old Testament. No historians mention it. Josephus doesn't mention it. In fact, the only information we get about the town of Nazareth in all the Bible is bad. So John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Paul, later in, in Acts 24, is called the leader of a Nazarene uh, sect, which was meant to be a massive insult. It was meant to totally discredit him. So it's unimportant. We know nothing. And what we, what we do know is all bad. Nothing good can come out of that. So you are well aware, whether you know it or not, that a town's reputation sticks to you, okay? So everybody is moving to Collin County, the whole world, and those of you who are from California, who we love from all of our hearts, I, I, I talk to you, and you're aware of the hostility that awaits you in conservative Texas. And so a lot of you are like, hey, I'm here, I'm new. And I'm like, oh yeah, did you move here? And you're like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, cool, where from? And you're like, uh, just, you know another place. I'm like, is it California? And you're like, yes, but I'm one of the good ones. Okay. Right. Why do you do that? That actually happens. I have to pry it out of you. Why do you do that? You're aware that the reputation of a town sticks to a person. My wife is from Norway. And when people in Texas hear that, they're like, oh, so she loves socialism. And I'm like, oh. no, okay. I'm not having this conversation. Right? When I went to Australia, everyone there thought I rode a horse everywhere that I went, and that some guy named JR died a couple of years ago, and I have no idea what they're talking about because I'm 30, not 60. Uh, right? <laughs> the reputation of a town sticks to a person. So, what is Matthew showing here? He's showing, <laughs> sorry, uh, the scorned, rejected, mocked Savior. Messiah that the prophets spoke about. In order for Jesus to be that Messiah, he has to pick, he chooses the most scorned, rejected, mocked town in Israel to be his home. Because the Messiah will be scorned, mocked, rejected, Jesus chooses to be called a Nazarene. Jesus will be despised in the same way Nazareth is despised. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus will be looked down at like Nazareth was looked down at. Or to quote John 1, 9 through 11, the true light, which gives light to everyone, the God of the universe, the eternal God of the universe who spoke creation into being and is holding creation into being. All things were created by him, for him. The true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was, ma- and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, remember the big question of the last section. He's this new deliverer. He's this new Moses, this new and better deliverance will come through him. Now, what is he going to deliver us from? The expectation is Rome. The new and worse Egypt is Rome. Jesus is coming to deliver us from our outside circumstances, our bad, negative oppression outside of us. That's the expectation. And here we see what he will actually, who he will actually be, a despised deliverer. Uh, I live in Irwin Farms. North McKinney, and we have this water tower right by our house. And for the past like nine months, they've been painting it. And so uh, they, it's like a really weird long process where they put, it looks like a Lord of the Rings tower. They're like putting spikes on it, uh, and then they hang this drape over it, and then they're painting it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this has got to be one of the newest water towers in all of McKinney. I don't know why they would just repaint it. Surely maybe there's a new design. Maybe they're going to put a dragon on the side. I don't know. And so they paint it, and they've been painting it for months and months and months, and then we, you know, they'll, they'll lower it, and we see like, oh, okay, they painted it all this weird gray, you know, skin, tan color, and then they put it back up, and we're like, oh, what's coming next? And then they finished, and it was the same. <laughs> it was the exact same, except they made the font uglier. Uh, and so at that point, I thought, McKinney needs more crime. We need, we, we don't have enough... We've got too much time on our hands. We're like, that newest water tower looks like it could be touched up for nine months. We're like, okay. Now, my expectations, I can see it from my backyard. I've just been waiting and waiting. What's, what's it gonna be? Surely it's gonna be better, you know, than the weird unique by nature slogan that makes no sense. And it's not. In fact, it was worse. Now, that is what we're gonna see over and over and over and over again as people encounter Jesus and begin to think he must be the Messiah. And then wait a minute, he's from Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. It's not what we, it's, it's, there's this high expectations, but it's worse. It's way worse than what we were expected. We see it probably most famously in Peter. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples and Peter stands up. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. And I'm going to die. I'll be delivered over to Rome and I'll be killed. And what does Peter do? Pulls him aside and rebukes him. Why? Because in Peter's mind, no, 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 you've got that backwards. You destroy Rome. Rome doesn't destroy you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You've got man's values. You're seeing as man sees, not as God sees. Everyone's expectations are going to be off because everyone's definition of power, of deliverance, of might, everyone's values are totally warped, totally upside down. Jesus isn't coming to make the proud prouder by just removing their external circumstances. Jesus is here to deliver you from a far, far, far worse enemy than Rome or Egypt, namely your own heart. Jesus is coming to be a deliverer, not of Rome, but of the ultimate enemy, the sin that is wrapped in your nature that you've been born into, the devil that has kept you enslaved, death that all of us have been enslaved to since Genesis 3. He's here to crush the head of the serpent. 
and to actually set you free, not from what's outside, but from what's inside. And because everybody has the total wrong value system, he will be despised for that. I don't need you to save me. I'm good. Just remove these people making my life worse. Man's values are totally different than what Jesus is going to come and expose. Every man, uh, whether we believe it or not, are just like the great theologian, heretic, Ricky Bobby, who says, if you're not first, wait, you're not first, you're last. Is that it? I haven't watched the movie in a while. If you're not first, you're last, right? We, since the beginning, the essence of sin is I am God, not God. I decide what is good and what is evil. I'm on the throne of my own heart. If I'm not first, I'm last. When Jesus is going to show up, he's going to say, you want to be first? Be last. You want to be exalted? What's the path to being exalted? Be humble. You want to fulfill the law? Don't go display your righteousness like the Pharisees. Rather, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Lay your life down for other people if you want to be exalted. It's the total reverse of what everyone is expecting, of man's natural sinful value system. He's here to deliver us, not by his physical might, but actually through his own death. He's going to use death to conquer death. Totally different than what everybody was expecting. So he is this new and better deliverer, but he is a despised deliverer from the self-righteous, those who think they need no savior. He's a scorned savior. Now, I want you to notice this last thing. Jesus does not leave his heavenly throne to come down to an earthly throne. He is not Jesus of Bethlehem. If he was Jesus of Bethlehem, everyone would have known, this is David's son, this is the coming king. He would have been praised, he would have been in the high courts, everyone would have assumed he's a king like all the other worldly kings. Rather, Jesus comes all the way down to the lowest of the low. And I want you to see the love of your God in Jesus settling in Nazareth. Uh, I have a reading group with some guys in this church where we read through different kind of classics throughout church history. And we were reading Athanasius, uh, the fourth century uh, church father. And Athanasius paints this picture of sin. The essence of sin is orienting away from God. We're meant to look and behold God and love him in the garden, but Adam's and Eve's eyes are cast down to themselves where their eyes look to themselves. They're the ones who are in control of everything. And so God's sending his son, he has to come all the way down. Why? Because our eyes were that far down. And he has to get to where our eyes are all the way down in order to lift our eyes back up to God. And so we were discussing this and I said, you know, this shows how sinful man is, how absolutely warped our, our perspective is. They're so far down. And Zane Clemo uh, said to me, sitting next to me, he publicly rebuked me and said, you're only focusing on the negative. Uh, and said, this actually shows how deep God's love goes. Yes, we're that sinful, but it actually shows how deep his love goes, which is exactly right. The beautiful irony of being a forgiven sinner, of being an adopted rebel, is the more you see your true sinful condition, you aren't just uh, spiraling down into morbid introspection. The more you see the reality of your own sinful heart, the more glorious your Savior will be to you because you will see how far he came to save you. A little sinner needs a little Savior. Right? The righteous, those who are perfectly healthy, 
need no doctor. Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. Right? He redeems our life from the pit. He comes to Nazareth. In order to redeem those who were rebels, he comes down to the dirt right? to lift our eyes back up to him. See the love of God in this. See the beauty of your Savior who comes that far down. Right? Little sin, little Savior. Big sin, beautiful Savior. He is a Nazarene. He's a despised, scorned Savior because he didn't come from those who just were good and just needed some deliverance from the outside, but rather came for those whose hearts were deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? Who could trust it? So that's our passage. That's Jesus settling in Nazareth. He's going to grow up in Nazareth. We're going to see next. We're getting to John the Baptist, our favorite fiery prophet, and Jesus is going to be an adult. So the end of the infancy narrative shows he doesn't come to the king's courts. He's born in a manger. He flees for his life, and he settles in the worst of the worst town because your Savior is a lowly Savior, a despised Savior by those who think they need no Savior. And in closing... You'll notice that uh, this sermon, this passage, doesn't have a whole lot of practical application, right? I'm not saying, therefore, when you travel, wait for dreams and wait for angels, right? Not a whole lot of practical, uh, you know, things to bring about self-improvement, but that's not what sermons are about. I actually love that there's not a whole lot of practical things here because the goal of every sermon should be to exalt Jesus Christ, who is your life, for you to see him clearer, for you to know him. Every detail of his life has infinite significance to you if he is your life. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you are on a date with your spouse and you're just hearing about their history, hearing about who they are and their passions, is that boring? It depends on how much you love them, on how much your life is wrapped up in them. If they're the love of your life that you will spend your whole life with, every detail should be soaked up and cherished. How much more Christ who is your life. In him we live and move and have our being. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So every time you read the scriptures, especially when you read the gospels and see the life of Jesus, gaze and soak in your savior. What is it in the story in Numbers 31, when their serpents are coming and biting everybody. I know we all skipped numbers and went straight to the Psalms uh, in our reading plans, but you know the story. Serpents going and biting, and what is Moses told when, for the deliverance? Take a bronze serpent, put him on a pole, lift him up, and those who look will be healed. Those who gaze will be delivered. Fast forward to John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus in the middle of the night, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And everyone who believes, everyone who gazes, everyone who beholds this beautiful Savior will have everlasting life. So simply see him, know him, love him, soak in every detail. And as you continue to run the race with endurance, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that we have every detail of the travels. We thank you for every bit that you've given us so that we might be filled with life that is in your son and in your son alone, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to you, Father, except through him. So I pray that you would just, by your spirit, 
develop in us the habit of not just thinking what are the list of religious duties I must do because I'm a Christian now, but rather show us the reality that we have been brought in to know you and to know your son by the power of your spirit, that that is eternal life, that we may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We want to love him more. So many of us can't. We're distracted by so many things. Our sin is clinging closely to our heart. I just pray that you would remove that from us and we would be a people who know and love our Savior because we know that we are known by our Savior, that we love you because you first loved us. I pray that you would do that in our hearts through these short little four verses, Father. We love you and pray in your son's beautiful, holy name. Amen.